Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest this week is a comedian, author and overall good egg, Dominic Frisby. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much, Constantine. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I love the way you paused after me as if you were considering whether to thank Francis Well, no, I'll tell you what the pause was because normally you, you, there's only one host. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, thank, thank you, Constant. Then I was, ah, Francis. So sort of, He's was, there as well. Yeah. Uh, the pause was thought. I, I introduced yeah. you. Uh, you're a man of many skills, but one of the things is an author, and you are the author of a book that's doing very well right now, which is this book here, Daylight Robbery, Yeah. Uh, which is all about tax. It is about tax. A, a, a riveting subject. Uh, which uh, may be dry, but you, you have managed to make it interesting. And uh, before you tell us all about that, just tell everybody who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been your journey through life? Okay. And do I tell you or do I go straight down you the camera? You tell to... us. Okay. So I have they a... don't matter, man. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. So uh, I have a, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I'm a Londoner. I have a, quite an unusual background in that um, uh, I started out, uh, I went to drama school when I was, you know, after university. And, but the reason I went to drama school is I thought all the best uh, writers started out as actors. So I sort of deliberately went to drama school to almost train as a writer. And then for some bizarre reason, I was the best at uh, radio in drama school. And I got a voiceover agent, like almost before I'd left drama school and found myself straight away doing voiceovers. And voiceovers is a very nice life. It's quite well paid and you're sort of treated like royalty wherever you go and you're looked after and you're not treated like muck in the same way if you're like a lowly comedian or a lowly actor or something like that. And so I just f sort of fell into doing voiceovers. And then in the late 90s, I'd written this song called The Upper Class Rap, which was the idea was it was going to be a novelty song that I wanted to release for Christmas. And I phoned up this friend of mine who I knew was a music agent, an old university friend. And he said to me, oh, no, I can't. I, he, he represented the Scissor Sisters. Do you remember the Scissor Sisters? And he said, oh, I can't be bothered with this, but go and try it at my brother's club. And his brother was Malcolm Hardy. And, <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And so um, on, and I remember it was a Sunday evening in 1997. And they used to do the, they'd have the open spots and they'd have two acts in the first half, then they'd have the open spots and the audience would always, you know, be horrible to the open spots. But if you did well, you got a paid booking. And um, the guy before me was a guy called Nige, um, who was, not Nige, um, oh, fuck, I forgot, uh, Hovis, Hovis Presley was his name. <laughs> Hovis, Presley. Hovis Presley. is sadly no longer with us, but he was brilliant and he was so funny. And he used to do these sort of lyrical Lancastrian poems and uh, in this sort of lyrical Lancastrian voice. And, and the reason I said Nigel is one of his lines was, my, dog, my mate's got a dog called Nigel. Talk about giving a dog a bad name. So I always remember Nigel. Anyway, and... They just were not having him in South East London and, and they were throwing things at him. But because he was very good and he knew what he was doing, and he was determined. He just carried on and on and on. And by the time he'd finished, I'd, I mean, it was the first time, obviously, I was ever performing. But I'd never seen a room in such total mayhem. And, Mal <laughs> and Malcolm just came on and said, right, our next act uh, is Make Me Brothers. Here he is. Could be shit. It's his first time on stage. And just introduced me on stage like that. And I borrowed my flatmate's pinstriped suit. And I was going, hello, hello, I'm the upper class rapper and all this. And the audience just went. They just started. It was like even more chaos than, <laughs> than it was when Nigel had been on. But, for, but it was a rap. So they played the music and I did the rap. And I had no... So I, did, I couldn't get involved in any banter because it was just an act. <laughs> so I just did the act and they just eventually just shut up and listened to it and found it very funny. And Malcolm just honoured his promise and gave me a paid gig the following Friday. And that went very well. So I got another paid gig. And they, they, I remember they said, I think it's a little early to give you a paid 20, given that it's only your second gig, but we will give you a paid 10. And they both went well. And they just put um, Jane then phoned up some other comedy clubs around London, East Dulwich Tavern and, and um, Comedy Caf and a couple of others and said, this guy's really funny, you should give him a thing. And suddenly I was a stand-up comedian. I'll have times have changed. How to, yeah, <laughs> they, there's young comedians listening to this now going, I've been a comedian for three years, I still haven't got a pain Yeah, pain. I know, there's no justice. But we were just, at, like, they were quite old school up the creek and there were other clubs that would make you jump through the hoops yeah. like they do now. But, but, but up the creek in those days were, they honoured their promise. And that was, um, and yes, yeah, so I found myself as a comedian. And then in the, right about the mid noughties combination of whatever, I'd made a bit of money and I wanted to invest it um, sensibly. And 
I started, I met a couple of people who, fund managers and so on, and I just didn't like them. It's something, you know, you just don't like them. Instinctively, <laughs> they want to take their percentages, and I just instinctively didn't like them. And you start reading on the internet. Back then, I was reading all about gold. And you think gold is just, you know, jewellery or whatever it is. But of course, gold until the 20th century was always money. And so it's a very political investment. And I became convinced that gold was a good investment for one thing and another. And um, there were these really interesting people talking about gold. And a bit like what you guys have done, I, th I was thinking, how do I talk to these people? I don't have to pay them 200 pounds an hour or whatever their fee is to get investment advice. But I'd really like to meet these people. So I actually started a podcast as a means to meet these people and talk to them. And you, you, as you probably discovered, the best, it, when you have a, do an interview with something, it's like that, it's, it's a heightened conversation. So you get, in one interview, you get to know somebody much quicker than you would if you just, you know, met them for a cup of coffee. Not the way we do it, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I started this podcast and I was interviewing all these, you know, people talking about gold and learning about the history of money and so on. And one of the people I interviewed was a lady called Mary Somerset Webb, who was the managing editor of, of Money Week at the oh, time. Oh, we spoke with her in Edinburgh together, didn't we? Yeah, yeah we yeah. did her show yeah. in Edinburgh. We've since become great friends. But Mary said, oh, we need people like you to come and write for us. Um, and by that, they meant people who can talk about finance without using financial jargon and put it in a language that you know, isn't alienating, but is, is interesting to ordinary people. So suddenly I found myself with a column for Money Week and then from there, I, um, this other guy called Ross Ashcroft got me to write this film for him called um, Four Horsemen, which became a big hit. And then so suddenly I was like a financial writer as well as being a comedian. And then I've, I've written now three books all about finance. I wrote the first book about Bitcoin way back when in 2014. And I've always been very interested in, in the impact of our systems of money on the way society works. And, you know, people try and explain how is it that governments so big in our lives? How is it that government is 40, 50% of GDP? Why is, you know, why is government everywhere? And I used to, it was because once upon a time, gold used to be money and, and you know, gold put a discipline on, on government so they could only spend as much money as they had gold. It's a bit more complicated than that. But, and so that put a sort of restriction on how big government could grow. But of course, um, in the First World War, to pay for the First World War, the, the British, American and uh, the British, German and French governments took their countries off the gold standard in order to print the money to pay for the war. If they'd stayed on the gold standard, the war couldn't have gone on for as long as it did. But they printed money and we went into a system of what's called fiat money, where governments effectively issue money. And that has enabled governments to just grow and grow and grow. So this is the reason we have such large national debts and we're able to write, yeah. run such we, we, large we operate, deficits. Basically, it's the system of money. Right. It, it, it's inherent. It's, a, it's what's called debt-based fiat money. That's really interesting. Yeah. So if we were still on a gold standard, we would have to live within our means. Much more, yeah. Wow. Much more. And and that includes governments. Yeah. And Or they go bankrupt. Right. But because they have control of money. It's, anyway, the bond market, it's, it's a bit more complicated than but 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 basically... And so this was my big sort of theory. And then in about 2015, I'm, I sort of developed the thing. And I was thinking, no, it's not just money. It's tax as well. Taxes. And, and so I started reading about tax and became slightly obsessed with it and did a show in Edinburgh um, called Let's Talk About Tax 2016. <laughs> and it went very well. And I got my little laurel for selling it out. And did you, you got a laurel, presumably, for your... Uh, I, I, um, what's the sellout percentage that you have? I don't Is know. it like 93% or something? I don't know. Yeah, anyway, I, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. It's funny to, it's funny to me because uh, you were very enthusiastic about my show being nominated for best newcomer. I'm sure it would be. Um, and I, I told Simon Evans I'm a mutual friend about this and he went nominated you're lucky you didn't get assassinated. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm not sure I was going to get any kind of laurels for anything. Well, no, but I think the the laurel is is not based on whether you've got the right or wrong opinion. I think it's based on I think everything in Edinburgh is based on whether you've got the right. Anyway. Oh, okay. But well, Simon's uh, very terribly realistic about those kind of things. But actually, in terms of the money thing, one of the curious things about you is you're someone who's been very wealthy and you've also gone bankrupt or certainly lost a lot of your money. Not gone bankrupt. Sorry, I don't mean to yeah, smear no, Yeah, I've, I've never gone bankrupt. I made a lot, I've made a lot of money twice yeah. and I've lost a lot of money yeah. twice. How did that happen? Well, uh, I don't really want to talk about that. Basically, I made a lot of money in gold and Let's gold Let's not shares. talk about it then. That's well, the, we can, they, we... the, it all collapsed in 2013. Mining completely collapsed. And so, you know, all the money I'd made, I effectively gave back. And then um, I was I was very early into Bitcoin. And so, you know, that was an extraordinary opportunity. But unfortunately, I got hacked. Yeah. And so I had my Bitcoin stolen way, way back when. So you'd so. be a, like a super millionaire. 
Yeah, by now. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell, he could he could be funding know, this podcast yeah. right now. Like I'm, I'm sort of I come to terms with it now. But in 2016, 2017, when Bitcoin went to twenty thousand dollars, I was like, every night I was having sleepless nights going. Oh my you know, god! I and could you could like never have to work again. Yeah, retired. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the, like my there's one thing I've always wanted to do. I've got this West End musical that I want to put on, and in order to put it on, I need like um, five probably five million pounds and. And, you know, so a lot of money and the, but I could have just like, I'm doing that. Fuck. Really? Yeah. And without, without it being an issue. You know? No, I, I think you know that this story with Bitcoin, I bought half a Bitcoin for yeah. 200 pounds. And then when it went up to 400 pounds, I was like, oh, look, I've doubled my money and I sold it. Half a Bitcoin now, that's what, like six grand? Um, well, actually, the, it, we, we're talking in the midst of the coronavirus, and right. so yesterday, Bitcoin price had a had a pretty bad day. Oh, did it? <laughs> so it's probably only worth maybe two, three, three thousand dollars now, something okay. like that. Okay, all right. So, but, wow, that's the fluctuations are huge. If I had a Bitcoin for every person that's told me a story like that about how they sold too early, yeah, I'd probably own the entire global supply. <laughs> well, look, we've touched on Bitcoin, so so why don't we talk about about crypto just very very quickly? Because sure. you were triggered by our uh, interview with Jim Rickard, were yeah. you not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. You got very upset with, with with Jim, but he basically no, I've not not I haven't actually seen the interview we did with you. Oh, but, okay. But he, Jim and I had a big debate at Kilconomics. Ah, yeah, right, right. So yeah, were you in the audience? Were you there? I don't well, think you were no, there. No. no, I wasn't there. Yeah. But uh, essentially, we were talking about it in the bar at Kilconomics, and because Jim's position, and I hope I'm not misquoting, he basically says that it's. It's a bit of a fraud. Yeah. yeah it, well, it's not a bit. It's a fraud, he thinks. And it's a bubble, and it's the worst type of bubble. You disagree with that? Can yeah. you put the case forward for Bitcoin and crypto, and why is it a good thing? Well, um, I would distinguish between Bitcoin and crypto because there are, there are lots of, um, like, okay, so let's just backtrack a bit. Every time you have a new breakthrough technology, you almost always, it is accompanied with a speculative bubble. So if you think of the internet, um, you know, there was a huge mm. bubble in dot-com stocks. Mm. And the story around the internet was, you know, the internet is going to change the world. And that story was right. It is going to change the world. It did change the world. But that didn't stop loads of stupid speculative money going in. And, you know, how many dot-com effectively scam companies there were, people raising money for just ridiculous companies. And so, and you had it with the railways, for example, in the 1830s and the 1850s in, in America and the UK, there were huge bubbles around railway technology. And it just always happens. You get a new technology and, you know, everyone gets very excited about it and it gets ahead of itself. But you need bubbles because bubbles accelerate the investment. So if we didn't have that bubble in tech in, in 2000, you know, the all the... Um, you know, the railway tracks wouldn't have been laid, the, 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 the cables wouldn't have been laid. So it accelerates investment. So, it, you know, a lot of people say, oh, bubbles are terrible. Now, but what you have with Bitcoin, it's a new technology. It's a breakthrough technology. But not only that, it's a new technology that is a new system of money. So if you were like a Marvel comic superhero designing like the ultimate bubble, it would be Bitcoin. And it, there's a finite supply of it. So that, again, drives up, um, puts a, increases the, um, the, the speculative potential of it. And so it is inherently bubbly. And people go, Bitcoin's a bubble. There have been about maybe five um, uh, booms and busts in Bitcoin in the 10 years that it's evolved. It is inherently speculative. And if you think of all the, you know, they're known in the crypto community as shit coins. But if you think of all the shit coins that have sprung up, you know, on the back of Bitcoins, almost there's about 95 percent of them are scams one way or the other. So there are loads of scams in the Bitcoin space. And then there's the, the story that Jamie Bartlett's thing did. He did on the radio about the crypto queen. You know, that I mean, it's just a massive, massive scam. And I, I believe the people that were involved in that scam believed in it when they were operating. But that was a sort of self-delusion thing. I think, you know, the, the best scammers actually almost they kid themselves when they're when they're performing the scam. So when Jim Jim says it is, you know, it, it is full of um, scams and frauds and all the rest of it. But Bitcoin itself is not a fraud. And Jim has made a big mistake. Jim's, you know, uh, you, you know, he studies money and has been writing about it. Jim should have just bought some Bitcoins. And because and, you just look at it and you go, 
It might not be, but it has the potential to be the default cash system of the internet. And remember, the, the, the internet is a borderless medium, effectively. And why is that, Dominic? What makes Bitcoin so good for being the exchange medium of the internet? Because I, I, I distinguish between cash and money. So if you, if you um, go into uh, a sweet shop and you'd get your card out and you buy whatever you buy in the sweet shop and you go bloop with your card, that is not a cash transaction because it, it involves a card company and a bank and all sorts of middlemen processing that transaction. And all these middlemen, they take their cut on the transaction and they all know there is a record of that transaction having taken place. If I go into the sweet shop and I you know, buy a newspaper, whatever it is, and I give the newspaper man a pound or whatever the cost of the newspaper is, it is a direct transaction, cash transaction that involves no middlemen. And we need, we're going into this kind of cashless society at the moment, but we need cash. You need cash for small transactions, for private transactions, for quick transactions, but especially, you know, illegal transactions. There are all reasons. <laughs> That's why you need it. And, you know, you can say, well, cash is illegal, but you can, you can then make the argument, well, no, the law is immoral. It's not me that's buying weed that's being immoral and using cash. It is the law making weed that's immoral and it's forcing me into an elite. You know, so there's all, it's not a cut and dry thing. But we need cash. And above all, we need cash for privacy and um, to protect privacy. And Bitcoin is cash for the internet. In other words, if I want to send money from me to you, I can send it directly from me to you with no middleman and nobody else need know about that transaction. And it can happen privately. It can happen instantly. It can happen for tiny amounts of money, fractions of a penny. And and so that's how it is cash. But aren't all Bitcoin transactions traceable? They are. They every Bitcoin transaction is is broadcast on the blockchain, which is effectively a huge database. So you can see that money, this amount of money went from this wallet with this address to this wallet with this address. Right. But what you can't see is who know, who owns the two wallets. So if you want to keep your wallet address private, then you keep it private and then you can keep it private. There's also things called Bitcoin mixers and all sorts of little technologies that have been added on, which um, um, basically obfuscate, uh, they put loads of transactions into one thing, muddle them all up, and they, so it all gets obfuscated, so it makes it very hard to trace. And where do you stand on this argument that goes, hang on, aren't you just encouraging the Wild West nature of the internet, you know, these nefarious people who want to, you know, trade in anything from, you know, drugs to child pornography to whatever it is, and Bitcoin is essentially aiding that? Uh, it certainly uh, facilitates and aids illegal activity. But if you look at the, uh, somebody's done a study on it and the amount of Bitcoins that are actually used uh, for um, the kind of transactions you described, it's like fewer than 2% or something. It's like an incredibly small um, uh, percentage. We're delighted to have a brand new sponsor for those of you who are interested in learning a foreign language. Mate, we've got a predominantly British audience. None of them are going to be interested in learning a foreign language. Yeah, that's true. Also, no one's really traveling right now to foreign <laughs> countries, let's be honest. But when, when the coronavirus is over, those of you who are still left on this planet might be interested in second language. And that's why Babbel is a great place for you. Babbel is great because they have a website and an app which allows you to learn a new language with 10-15 minute snippets every day in a clear and simple way, which is great for people like Francis who are simple. Absolutely. And also as well, when you're in quarantine, what else are you going to do? You can try Babbel completely free. Simply head over to babbel.co.uk or download the app and you can try it completely free. That's right, guys. Go on to www.babbel and that is spelt B A double B E L dot co dot UK or download the app and make that time in isolation fly by. Well, let's move on to talk about your book and tax yeah. because it's a fascinating angle of attack that you have uh, where you talk about the fact that almost all of the major events in history can be interpreted through the, les le the, the lens of tax in a way that gives you a different perspective on it. So yeah. for, for, for our viewers and listeners to whom that may sound a bit of an alien concept, just give us some examples of what you're talking so, about. So um, 
when I started writing this book, the, I did the show in 2016, and then that led to um, a, a book deal. And the, the, the central thesis of the book is that taxation is as old as civilization itself. There has never been in all recorded history a civilization without taxation of some kind. And in fact, taxation probably predated civilization. In the hunter-gatherer societies before human beings settled in on the, the fertile plains between the mm. Tigris and the Euphrates, there was probably already existed this sense of duty to the greater collective. Mm. And that is the, 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 the central principle of taxation. And, you know, the very first taxes we have were in ancient Mesopotamia. And in fact, the very first examples we have of ancient handwriting are tax records, mm. tax documents. And you can look at this, you know, tax records were, are always, historians always look at tax records first because they're, for obvious reasons, the best preserved records because they're records of debts. And... In all the time since then, there's never been a civilization without taxation. Now, taxation can take various different forms. So um, you pay taxes uh, in cash, but in, you know, in ancient civilization, there wasn't necessarily money yet. Um, you know, so you might pay your taxes with a share of your produce is given. Uh, and in fact, the very first tithes were in ancient Mesopotamia or a share of your labor. Uh, or So taxes not just taken in in cash, they're taken in, in the form of labor. And then you, you have these sort of two extremes where you might have a slave at one extreme where 100% of that slave's labor is owned. In fact, the slave has no ownership of, of nothing. And at the other extent, if you have a, a completely, a complete anarchy with no, um, no government, no leaders whatsoever, then, and so total freedom, nothing is taken. And so those would be the two extremes. But that society where nothing is taken has pretty much never existed. Although in ancient Greece, quite interestingly, in ancient Athens, before the Peloponnesian War, taxes were voluntary. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like Greece now then? Well, <laughs> sort of. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so they were voluntary. And uh, how did, it, did people pay them? Yeah. Uh, the, it was, the taxes were only paid by the very rich. Oh, okay. And it was expected that there was this sort of culture of, 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 of social duty and benevolence in ancient Greek society. And there was this idea of um, that. So if you think of someone like um, Pericles, you know, King Pericles, they would, if, the, if it was deemed that the city needed a games or it needed a new bridge or it needed a new building built or needed a warship or whatever it is, it would be beholden to the rich to pay for the construction of that, of, for, the, for those games or for that building or for that bridge or for that ship. And not only would they were expected to pay for it, they would be expected to carry out the, that work as well. So rather than give your money to a bureaucrat who gives it to a, you know, a company that, to do the thing, that person would carry it. And they, they would then put their own name on it. So it would be, you know, Pericles' bridge or Pericles' building. And many of, you know, the greatest work buildings in ancient Greece were built in this way. It was called liturgy, the Parthenon, um, it's believed was built. And, you know, they provided the warships that pre um, protected the Athenian shipping lanes from pirates and so on. Athens back then was a big trading empire. And because the rich person was putting his name on it, his reputation was at stake. So the actual result was he obviously often carried out the piece of work to the highest possible standard because it was his reputation is standing and would often spend more than the minimum. Whereas now we have this culture of, you know, paying the least possible tax. They would often spend more because they wanted to make sure it was done. to thing. And it was this sort of this your kind of social duty. And funnily enough, duty, we have this word duty. Duty is actually a tax. Mm. It's another word for tax. Right. So. So you have all these different, but, but there has, in all that time, there has never existed a society without taxation of some kind. So that was the first kind of realization. You know, as, as, as Benjamin Franklin said, you know, taxes and death are the two inevitabilities. And actually that phrase, he wasn't the first person to say that. He's credited as being the first person to say that. But the, the first person to say that was actually in a, in a comedian. <laughs> in an early 18th century farce called The Cobbler of, Pre of Preston, that this idea that, that they, these are the two inevitabilities. Anyway, and, but you can look back through history and you, you get this, you suddenly realize that tax is power. 
if a king or a government or an emperor, whoever the leader is, as, as long as they control, the, as soon as they lose their tax revenue, they lose their power. Taxation is power. It is control. And you, you, when, you, when you start to look at things through that, you know, you can imagine if governments today don't have the tax revenue, pretty quickly the whole thing falls apart. And you then think every war in history was funded by some kind of tax. Every single war. You tax during the event and then afterwards, you know, the conquered territories would be plundered and then taxed. And often wars are funded through debt, but debt is just a taxation on the future. I regard debt as another form of taxation. Every revolution has been a rising up, a revolt against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. The most famous ones being the French Revolution, the American Civil War. No taxation without representation. Even the Russian Revolution. The American Revolution, yeah. No, th that was the, 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 uh, the US American Revolution. But even the Russian Revolution. Was... No, sorry, you said American Civil War. That's why. Uh, sorry, the, American yeah, Revolution. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I, I always get those. And the Russian many. Revolution. Tell well, me about that one. Well, you're going to know more about it than I am. Highly but, unlikely, mate. <laughs> well, OK. But it, it, was a, it, was a, it was an overthrowing of serfdom. Yes. effectively. And, yes. and serfdom was, again, a system of taxing and rules. Serfs paid. Uh, they didn't necessarily pay cash, but their labor was owned and they paid their labor and their labor was taken by their lords and so on. And, and funnily enough, quite interesting, serfdom was overthrown in Western Europe. The feudal system was overthrown in Western Europe by the Black Death mm. because it killed, wiped everyone out and suddenly there was a shortage of labor and serfs were able to demand their freedom and payment for their labor. And so even though, you know, two thirds of the population was wiped out, it gave serfdom the freedom. Black death never hit Russia in the same way that it did Western Europe. And so the culture, the, the system remained and it took, you know, the Russian Revolution to get rid of it. Well, there's a silver lining to the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if two thirds of us are wiped out, the rest of us might have some uh, better bargaining Well, yeah. that is the, um, there is that argument, but it's not one I'd. <laughs> it was just a fucking joke, mate. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I, know, I know, But uh, but so you know, so then you think every war, every revolution, every you know, even things like the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph were only in Bethlehem to pay taxes because Caesar Augustus had um, issued a census, and that's why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem. If it's, if Augustus hadn't issued that census, and by the way, census where we get the word censorship, mm. the censor in ancient Rome was the guy who adjudicated public morality, but he was also the tax collector. Right. And, that, and there's, always, there's often been this moral thing with taxes. As I said, we, we mentioned the word duty. Um, and we, that moral argument gets used in taxation today. It is your social duty to the greatest collective to pay your taxes so that we can have good health care and welfare and so on. But anyway, Mary and Joseph would not have been in Bethlehem were it not to pay taxes effectively. And without that, we would have, um, Christianity would never have evolved in the way that it did. Moses led the Jews out of Egypt to escape the burden of taxation. That taxation, the, the, the persecution of the Jews uh, in ancient Egypt began with taxation and then it eventually led to slavery. The reason the Jews were enslaved was non-payment of taxes. That was the uh, prisoners of war and non-payment of taxes were the ways that you could be enslaved in ancient Egypt. So effectively, Moses led the Jews out of Egypt. And from there, we have the Ten Commandments. You know, so there's a tax story at the, at the birth of Judaism. Um, and by the way, the persecution of the Jews in, in Nazi Germany began with taxes as well. Uh, um, uh, and in the medieval kingdoms, which sure. frequently... Yeah. There were all sorts of Jewish ties yeah. were leather, levied. And even Islam, there's a tax story at the birth of Islam. And it's, it, people can't understand how in from between 660 and 690, in like the first four or five caliphs from Muhammad and then the first four caliphs, Islam went from being nothing to basically owning most of the Middle East and most of North Africa. Yeah. And then you realize they had this policy of the, the countries they conquered were heavily conquered, end of the Roman Empire, Sasanian Empire, Byzantine Empire. And people were so heavily taxed they have very little loyalty to their existing rulers and they were just grateful for relief from taxes. Um, but the, there was a chap called Abu Bakir, the first ca caliph, and some of his successors. And they pursued a policy of when they conquered people, they gave them exemption from taxation if they converted to Islam. And if you didn't convert to Islam, you would have to pay poll taxes. And if you didn't pay the poll taxes, you were killed. So it was death, taxes or Islam.
<laughs> Which one are you going to pick? Absolutely. And then the, the early caliphs were brilliant, brilliant people. So they had this um, policy, but they also had this um, uh, uh, idea that they shouldn't burden conquered nations with heavy taxes. So if, for example, there was a bad weather, then they would say, lighten the tax load. Let these people be you know, trade and get rich because more money will, if the people are rich, more money will eventually make, it, make its way to the exchequer. And this was an argument that was championed by economists like Arthur Laffer later on and in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, the, this idea that tax people less and more money ends up making its way to the exchequer. So Islam, you know, so there's a tax story at the birth of Islam. Even something like, you know, 9-11, the Twin Towers were built largely with tax money. First men on the moon were paid, you know, NASA was a tax-funded operation. And you just look at any event in history and you'll suddenly realise that without this sort of untold tax story, things would have unfolded in a very different way. So we were talking about power. Now, to me, it seems the government and any government has to strike a very fine balance. Like you said, they need tax revenue in order to keep going. But if the taxes are deemed to be unacceptable or too high, they can lose their power. So the last time I remember something like that happening was the poll tax rise yeah, in the early 90s. Yeah. And in fact, the, the sort of golden rule is that, that governments find it very difficult to levy new taxes in times of peace. So the poll tax was what Thatcher was actually attempting to do with the poll tax. It's quite interesting. Is she was trying to bring more accountability to local councils and make their out-of-control spending more transparent. And But what ended up happening is, is that the out-of-control spending from local councils was so apparent because poll taxes became so high so quickly that everyone was at utterly outraged, but rather rather than having a go at the local council, Thatcher was blamed because she brought it in. But nevertheless, and the poll tax brought down Thatcher, mm. you know, arguably the most successful, you know, post-war politician of the second half of the 20th century, maybe Tony Blair. But, you know, his poll tax brought her down. And, you know, even things, stupid things like, you know, George Osborne's pasty tax and his, his man and um, Ed Miliband's mansion taxes, you, you, they, they just don't get through in times of peace. You in order to get new taxes in, you need some kind of crisis, usually a war. And so, for example, 2008, the financial crisis gave us quantitative easing, which is another, it's, it's taxation by inflation. Um, Milton Friedman called inflation um, taxation without legislation. <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, you need, you know, if the idea of printing money and quantitative easing and zero interest rates, if, if there wasn't a financial crisis and the, the global financial system wasn't about to implode, everyone would have gone, what? No. And and so World War Two, prior to World War Two, ordinary Americans didn't pay income tax. It was only the richest Americans that paid income really? tax. Wow. 1942 Revenue Act um, uh, brought income tax to ordinary Americans for the very first time. Similarly, in the First World War, the British income tax had just existed, but it was only the very rich that paid it. And ordinary British people did not pay income tax until the First World War. And suddenly with the First World War, time of crisis funding, the soldiers are a good thing, women come into the workforce. And bizarrely, that's another one where people talk about women being given the vote. Now, one of the core arguments in the um, women being given the vote in, uh, after the First World War was the fact that women had paid taxes during the First World War because they were all now working. And that was justification as to why women should be given the vote. So even at something unconnected like the suffragettes, there's a tax story there. But um, ordinary Americans did not pay income tax until 1942. And there was a, the 1942 Revenue Act. And in order to um, like persuade Americans that it was their patriotic duty to pay, there was all sorts of like Donald, there was a film commission from Walt Duck Disney that had Donald Duck paying his income tax really happily <laughs> and showing him how to fill out the form. And Irving Berlin was commissioned to write a song um, called uh, um, I Paid My Income Tax Today. And it contains the line, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin. They'll all be paid for. And I chipped in. See those bombers in the sky. Rockefeller helped to build them. So did I. And was ever the tax, the link between tax and war more apparent? I don't think you could get away with that now, could you? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I mean, you know, what played for the Iraq war? And, yeah. You know, like every... The Battle of Fallujah was funded by me. <laughs> well, but they, they, you know, that was, that was the mentality. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, every conquest as well has been about taking control of the tax base, the land, the labour, the produce, the profit. So, but, so you need a crisis to introduce 
new levels of tax. But what happens after the crisis passes is that taxation never goes back to the levels that it was before the crisis began. After the first world, after the Second World War, for example, you know, the wounded have got to be helped. We had the birth of the NHS. We had so a land grab goes on in a time of crisis where government seizes some kind of control and then never gives it back afterwards. And the IFS calls this the, the ratchet effect. And so if you, when you try and figure out how it is that, that government, you know, if you think in 1900, government was about 10, 15% of GDP in the UK. Now it's more like 45, 50%. Same in, and all across Western Europe, France is like, government spending is like 56% of GDP. And the gilets jaunes, there's another example of, of, of another tax rebellion oil taxes. And this, this, this uprising in Lebanon was about uh, taxes on WhatsApp. They tried to levy a tax. Every time you make calls on WhatsApp and send taxes on WhatsApp, they tried to levy a tax and it caused a rebellion. So, um, so you need a crisis. And uh, coming back today, we've got this coronavirus crisis going on. I promise you, and you, the government has spent all this pledges bailing out and fiscal stimulus and all the rest of it. It's a land grab going on. And you will see suddenly when the crisis passes, this bigger um, space in the economy that government occupies won't be ceded. The Tories are supposed to believe in limited government, but... No, they don't no. anymore. Yeah, whatever, yeah. They're just social democrats by another name. And so that's what we'll see in this crisis now. That's very interesting because under austerity, there was they put the VAT up to 20%, didn't they? And did they ever reverse it or is it still at 20%? No. They've halted taxes now a little bit. There's no extra. F we just had the budget this week and there's very few extra taxes on things like alcohol. All the sin taxes have been flat and there's little. But, but, but um, you know, this is one of the big arguments that's going on in Europe is in order to get legislation through the EU, they have to have 100 percent um, agreement amongst the member states. And they're trying to harmonise taxes. They want higher levels of VAT. They want to introduce financial transactions tax. They want to introduce um, digital taxes. But they can't get it through because they need the agreement. So they're trying to change the European constitution to just a majority. And they use, um, Juncker and various others use all sorts of the most Orwellian language to describe, um, you know, for the common good this, this, we don't need majorities anymore. And without a total majority, you know, the smaller EU member states will get shafted by greater taxes. So, the, you know, but as soon as the EU starts setting taxes rather than individual nation states, then the whole power structure of Europe changes. You can see Dominic is the author of the song 17 Million Fuck Off <laughs> <laughs> about the success of Brexit. Yeah. That song did very well, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Uh, it was um, my hit. Mm. It got to number 43 in the charts. So oh, not, wow. Not quite a hit. It needs to be top 40 to be a hit. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, I wrote it in March just before we were supposed to leave and didn't, March 2019. And uh, and then we did a, I did a new verse after the general election in December. Well, I remember actually at on Brexit Day, I turned on the TV uh, to watch serious Sky News coverage of the event, <laughs> and it was just loads of people in the background going "fuck off" <laughs> uh, along to the music. That I don't think I will ever have a better moment in my entire <laughs> life. I performed that song on Brexit night in Parliament Square, um, somewhere between fifty and hundred thousand people. And just singing that song, I'll never, I just like, I'll, I'll never do such a big and memorable gig. And, but the really funny thing about that gig is the, the idea is, is, you know, you list all the things that they said would happen if you voted to leave. There'd be food, food shortages and riots and, and, you know, no sandwiches and um, there'd be an outbreak of super gonorrhea and all these stupid things they said would happen. Funny enough, they are happening, yeah. but, <laughs> but not quite for that reason. No. But anyway, all these things would happen. And, um, and the English told them to fuck off. And that was the, the catchphrase. But I was told if I sang the English, to, if I said the word fuck in Parliament Square on, on this thing, I'd be done for a public order offence. Mm. So, I, so I said to the audience, I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to get land, you know, the organisers of the event in trouble. So I'm going to say fudge. And so every time the thing comes, I go, the English told them to fudge off. But you can all sing the lyrics as they were originally written. And I don't think they're going to, they can arrest 50,000 of you. 
So the audience all just sang it. And there's this, as you said, there's this hilarious interview with Nigel Farage where he's trying to do an interview with Sky from the thing while I'm singing the song in the background. And all you can hear is, the English told you to fuck off. The English told you to fuck off. And Nigel Farage is going, it's very difficult to hear. It's very, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. And he can't hear because all he can hear and everyone's trying yeah. not to laugh. Is there a tax dimension to Brexit? Well, yes, I very much think so. Firstly, that thing I described of, yeah. of the mm. Euro European trying to, EU trying to harmonise um, taxes is one danger. You know, centralised power in effectively in Brussels and um, uh, Brexit was a vote against that centralisation. Um, but I hoped that, you know, I voted for Brexit mainly because I'm a libertarian and I believe in as little government as possible and it removes a layer of government effectively. But my hope, perhaps a little naively, was that it would lead to a sort of, most libertarians voted for Brexit, quite a few mm. didn't, but I think the majority of libertarians were in favour of it. And we were hoping that it would lead to a much reduced government in the UK and a much freer, you know, sovereign society. But that doesn't appear to be the case. <laughs> so, Dominic, you see, say that you're a libertarian and that you would prefer smaller government, lower intervention, lower taxes. Can you make the case for libertarianism and why you believe in smaller government? Because if you look at all throughout history, the happiest, the most inventive, the most innovative, the most wealthy societies, the greatest societies in history have always had very high levels of freedom. Uh, you know, whether it's the early Roman Republic or ancient Athens or the greatest societies, that freedom reduces as the society evolves. But even, you know, Britain in the second half of the, the 19th century, sort of Britain's golden era, was a very low tax society. Early America, you know, the great America of was extremely low tax society in the second half of the 19th and early 20th century. And so the central case for libertarianism, and then if you look at the, the opposite of that, and you look at the societies that have had very high levels of government, high levels of taxes, low levels of, of freedom. And by the way, there is a relationship between taxation and freedom. The less tax you pay, the more free you are, because the more of your own labor you own, and the more economic freedom. You can't have freedom without economic freedom, is a Thatcher line. And so the central core is the less tax we pay, the freer we are, the more free we are to experiment with our money, with our ideas, with our thought. You know, all you guys are big free speech guys. It's all part of the same thing. Free speech, free movement, free trade. It's all part of the same. You get all these guys who are in favor of free speech, but not free trade. You know, come on, it's free everything. And, um, you, ha you have the greatest level of freedom, but you also have the greatest levels of individual responsibility. Individuals are much more accountable for their own actions, for their own choices. And as a result, they tend to behave better. And they tend to act in a way that benefits themselves and also as a result benefits the greater good. And so the greatest societies in history have always been low tax libertarian type societies. What about Scandinavia? Because everyone always bangs on about how they've got this utopian society with high levels of tax and wealth redistribution. They do. And it's the core argument that's always used to champion Scandinavia. But I don't think Scandinavia is a particularly happy place at the moment, particularly Sweden. Mm. And Sweden's had all sorts of problems. But what Scandinavia gets right, and I, I think there's a thing in Scandinavia, there's a, there's, well, let me just describe what, what Scandinavia gets right in its tax systems is tax, a much higher percentage of taxes are levied locally, where there is far greater accountability. So people can see that the taxes they pay, they can see the immediate consequences of it, and they can hold the people who are spending their money badly to much greater account. So um, whereas... Uh, in the UK, for example, much higher percentages are levied centrally and there's much less accountability. So I think people are happier to pay higher levels of taxes when there is greater accountability for the money and how it's spent. And there's a more clear, visible effect between me giving this money and being able to see how that money was used and the, the bomber, <laughs> the bombs that it was uh, spent on. Um, but the other thing that I, I think exists in Scandinavian countries, and I think it's is almost the weather, 
that breeds this. And you, you get it, uh, you probably get it in northern Russia, I'm not sure, I don't know enough about it, but you certainly get it in Canada, where there's this thing of, if you do not prepare for the winter, oh, yeah. you die. Oh yeah. So that breeds a sort of responsibility and a preparation and a, and a collectiveness that maybe doesn't exist so much in, say, southern Europe or where it's hotter, where they tend to be much more laissez-faire. And, and, and so it, it's sort of almost the weather creates a culture. And so this culture of social responsibility and individual responsibility exists in the Scandinavian countries that maybe isn't as prevalent further south. And I'm, this is a question that I've always wanted to ask you, Dominic. So you're a libertarian, small government, low intervention. What about the NHS? The NHS, a national health service, is not the best means, in my opinion, to provide the highest standard of care to the most possible people at the lowest possible cost. And nor is state education the best means to provide the best possible education. There's so much waste in the NHS. It's, a, it's just so big and bloated. It's so hard to run. And if you look at um, areas of the economy where it's pretty much a free market, they're not provided by the state. You look at something like food, for example, the food revolution that's happened in the UK. Now, food is as essential as good healthcare is essential to our survival, but food is largely not provided by government. And you just see the market at work in the food industry. We've got the most incredible variety of food now. The highest, the most wonderful quality. You can find fault with it because I don't like supermarkets. I don't like this. You can find faults with stuff, but there is so much choice. And the cost of food on a relative basis, like food, clothing and accommodation made up over 50 percent of um, a worker's outlay. Or I think it was like 80 percent 100 years ago, something like that. Food, clothing and accommodation. Now, food, clothing, and f- food, clothing and accommodation is a much lower portion, like 15 to 20 percent of somebody's outlay, something like that. Maybe accommodation a bit higher. Um, but they didn't have... The, the most expensive purchase you ever make is your government, of course, which is like over 50% of everything you ever earn will end up in the government over the course of your entire life. And so anyway, you, you look at something that, that is provided largely by a free market, food, clothing. We've got incredible choice. And, you know, I know we have food banks and so on, but really nobody needs to go hungry. You know, you can buy for a pound you can buy an incredibly, the ingredients to make an incredibly healthy vegetable soup or whatever it is that would have been a luxury a hundred years ago. And the problem with a national health service is it is run not for the benefit of the consumer, i.e. the patient, it is run largely for the benefit of the supplier. And whereas if you think, you know, you go into a shop, you don't like the service you get in the shop, you don't have to go to that shop, you can go to another shop. Or you can leave that shop a bad review or you can not pay the, the restaurant. You know, the, 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 the shop is so desperate for your customer or the restaurant. So def- they will try and give you the best possible service. So on. That dynamic doesn't exist in the National Health Service. And it should. In the 19th century, we had the friendly societies and um, uh, um, much more insurance based system of healthcare, And doctors were employed by local communities. And if that doctor's... Um, they did, the doctors didn't like what the doctor was doing. Local communities, he was held accountable to the local communities and they could sack him and, and employ another one. That same dynamic just doesn't exist within the NHS. It's so rife with protectionism and special interest groups. It is, a, it is an absolute um, mine of crony capitalism. There's so much corruption landing these contracts and you get these stupid situations where I'm, I'm going to get the figures exactly wrong but you know some company is finding a way of charging the NHS 10 pounds per packet of paracetamol whereas you look at the, what you know paracetamol in the free market you can buy it for 20p and it's absurd that the NHS is being billed these amounts and all these inefficiencies that just wouldn't happen if 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 small companies were running individual businesses within the NHS on a profit and loss basis where they had to take much greater account of of waste so it's just not the best way to provide the best possible healthcare at the lowest possible cost. Now, people go, if we didn't have an NHS, then people would go untreated. And I just don't believe that. Because let's say healthcare wasn't provided by the state, and you go back to a 19th century, you know, you, you, 
if the state wasn't providing healthcare, we would all have to take precautions to look after our own healthcare and provide for it, not just for ourselves, but for other people in the community as well. And so you'd have, you know, I, I envisage if there was no healthcare, and this is ideal, idealistic chat because the idea of getting away, getting rid of the NHS is just not realistic. But, you know, people would have greater responsibility to look after their own lives, look after their own health, provide for their own health care and provide for the health care of others in their community as well. And, you know, it's, it's, you'll never prove it because you can't prove something that's not going to exist. But if, if, you, if, if government didn't provide health care, I believe that healthcare services and healthcare provision would see would be as advanced and as brilliant as food and clothing. But the obvious counterexample to that would be the United States, where people do go and. No, treat. it's not the obvious counter. The United States spends almost twice as much. Four the United States much. government spends almost twice as much on healthcare right. per capita as the UK government does. The United States government is this kind of mix, is this crony capitalist mixture of an insurance-based system mixed with, um, it's just horrendous and it is the worst possible outcome. And, you know, far better systems is, I think, Switzerland, New Zealand, France, they all have insurance-based systems that work much better than ours do. You get um, and what is an insurance-based system for the people who don't know? Well, the, what the friendly societies did in the, in the second half of the 19th century is as, you know, there was this huge economic boom. It was the greatest, um, one of the greatest periods of wealth creation ever, ever known. It saw the greatest wealth growth uh, ever seen. And in local communities, workers would put in a portion of their money, they would give to what was their friendly society, like the co-op co was a friendly society. And they would put a portion of their earnings and they would have, a, 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 there would be local communities, uh, local friendly societies. And then that friendly society would then provide the healthcare, you know, it would employ the doctors, uh, employ the nurses and whatever, whatever else was needed. And in, and in times of emergency, you know, there would be that, that five pounds that they'd put in of their, that five percent of their earnings or whatever they'd put in would be their insurance in, in the case of and the, the community would decide, you know, well, that's this is Francis. He's been putting money in this thing all this time. He's a good guy. You know, we need to help him. Oh, this is Constantine. Constantine's lost his job. He's lost. Everything. And so welfare was was and healthcare was provided on a mutual basis locally. And it meant there was much greater flexibility. So, you know, if Constantine's a bum and he never does the work and he, and, and, and he needs to kick up the bum, then that's Correct. one kind of welfare. <laughs> and if, if Francis is a good guy and actually he needs to be, you know, have an arm around him and be stroked, and, you know, yeah, there's much more flexibility. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. But so there's just much more flexibility, whereas one now, our system of welfare is like a top-down, one-size-fits-all. So, and that's, that's how insurance worked. And it was so successful that Lloyd George and... Um, Winston Churchill in the National Insurance Act of 1911 tried to copy it on a national level. So they, this, they introduced national insurance and people would put in a portion of their earnings into the insurance system and as a result, if they needed emergency health care or anything else, that came out of the national insurance. The problem was people couldn't afford or didn't chose not to pay national insurance and for their local thing. They were effectively buying it twice. National insurance was compulsory. The local one wasn't. And so they had to carry on paying the local one and the, uh, the national one and the local ones all went out of business. So it was a free market evolution that was so successful the government copied it and then messed it up. And today, the money you pay into national insurance should be there mm. for you to call on in an emergency, but it isn't because the government spends it. Just now, if a corporation did that, they'd you know, it's what Robert Maxwell did. It's effectively fraud. But um, governments, it's a different rule for them. <laughs> well, that's nicely summed, Dom Dominic. Um, our final question is always, what's the one thing that we're not talking about that we ought to be talking about? I think the one thing we're not talking about, slowly starting to talk about it, is race and racism. What is racism? Because we have had these, you know, accusations thrown about so-and-so is racist now what actually is what actually is racism uh, it, you know if it, 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 and i say this as, as you know somebody was my kids are all mixed race not all actually two of them are mixed race um 
what uh, define like, is is racism actively going and persecuting somebody on account of their race? That's oh, the transformation or, of the last. Or is 10 it years just accidentally using the wrong word? Right. Well, the transformation of the last ten years on that issue has been incredible. Racism used to mean prejudice against people on the basis of their skin yeah. color. Now it means you said something that people can misinterpret if they so choose. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're racist if you use the wrong words, but the wrong words, but. I just think we're all prejudiced. We all, the constant, you know, a discriminating gentleman used to be a, a good thing. Now, if you're discriminating, it's, it's a bad thing. But, you know, I'm constantly making judgment all the way through having a conversation with somebody or having a relationship, whatever. You're constantly making judgments on whatever level the, operate, the, the relationship works. Now, you make judgments based on how they look, how they sound, uh, all, how, all sorts of different things. And what, are we just supposed to just ignore the fact that this guy is a different race to you? Are we just supposed to pretend that there aren't different races? Because there are. And different, ra different races, different cultures, everyone has different characteristics. They just do. And I just think there's a, a, a dishonesty to the whole argument. Whereas we're so scared of being called racist that we just airbrush the whole thing and pretend that nothing exists, that there's no... And so the sooner we can um, acknowledge that, make, that acknowledging that people are different doesn't mean you are going to actively go out and persecute their, their, that person on account of their race. That's the sound of Dominic getting cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess, the, well, let's explore that because I think it's a really fascinating conversation. I guess the argument would be that we've decided to be hypersensitive about race because we went through periods in history where there was a lot of stereotyping of people based on their ethnicity or race, which was used to then discriminate against those people. Yeah. So the idea would be, you know, as you say, we all have our biases, but the idea would have been in the past that a lot of people would have said, well, black people are all lazy, right? Which then would prevent a particular black person who was really hardworking right, from being seen for who they actually are, as opposed to being seen through the, the prism of their land, of their uh, race or their mm -hmm. skin color, right? So, you know, th that I think we would all agree is a positive that we moved away from judging people in these broad, broad categories, right? Uh, what, um, we agreed on that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are you saying exactly? Because I don't want people to take what you said out of context or to misunderstand. The the, the, the crime of racism, the sin of racism, whatever you like, has been totally undermined by overuse of the term. Absolutely. And just dishing it out and just going, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't agree with me. They're racist. Yeah. And they can smear somebody with that. And it's like the once you've got the racist label, like many people just have never recovered. It doesn't wash off. It just, yeah, it does never. And, and you know, lives have been written and they've kind of been smeared with this thing. And it's a terrible thing to do to somebody. Like you get all these, and but the, the whole, the, the problem now with racism is there's so much protection has yeah. gone on that it's just created so many special interest groups mm -hmm. campaigning for, you know, it's not just a race thing. It's just any type of yeah. identity is demanding that it's got, whether it's trans or, or, or is Islamic group or a black group or a white, whatever. And, and now we've got this thing where there's almost like a white, uh, white, I, I've just written a song uh, about this very thing called I am a white man and I'm sorry. Mm. And, and it's like, there's loads of white people are just going, are complaining that they're victims of racism, and they are because they're being overlooked in favour of jobs or whatever it is because somebody's got to tick this ethnic. And so it's just this insane culture of special interest groups. Yeah. And I just think, like, I I think there are ve there are might you know be people who go, you know, we always go, oh, I don't know, I hate scousers. You go to Liverpool and you, you know some scouse bloke's horrible to you, and you go, oh, I fucking hate scousers. And it's one of those things that you might say, uh, or, you know, and I hear Northerns coming down to London going, I fucking hate Cockneys. You just, you know, whatever, the, the, the old definition of the, now that is racist, according to today's terminology. But just cause, you know, I've gone off, you know, or I, I go to 
uh, France and there's a huge queue in passport control or something and I'm fucking French, whatever. That's effectively a racist thing to say. Now, but in saying that thing, I'm not advocating the persecution of Scousers or Northerners who come to London and moan about Cockneys. They're not advocating the persecution of Cockneys. It's just one of those things that you say. So I think we just need to be more transparent and understand what is racism which to me is, is the systematic persecution of people on account of their thing, and what is just normal human behaviour. Well, we've got nothing to worry about as we voted <laughs> Remain, didn't we? <laughs> we're as pure as driven Plus snow. Plus our producers well, are scouts, so I'm we're fully in favour of oppressing right, You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm immune from all charges because of the racial makeup of my family, but, but, but you know... It, Mate, it, it doesn't get me off with my brown mother, Venezuelan mother. No, but he actually married a woman of a different colour. Oh, did, there yeah, you go. I mean, I've got mixed race kids. Yeah, yeah. But, there you but go. They, but, <laughs> uh, you, 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 you need to. You need to. Every time someone accuses yeah. you, just bring out a photo. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's <laughs> the way out of it. But Dominic, yeah, it was immu- been a, I've been given immunity. Yeah, you have. <laughs> it just makes sure you've always got one with you at yeah. all times. Yeah. But you know, she would. I mean, we're not married anymore. But she would have a go at me. Yeah. Uh, on account of my, you know, race, color, background, age. And I would do the same to her, and, it, and now we're no longer married. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just you justifying your past behaviour. No, but the, you, you take my point that, yeah. that it's just like it, we, if we, it's, it's everyone is so uncomfortable with it mm. that it just makes them freeze, and that is just not healthy. No. And it, it's and it's because of this sort of culture of special interest groups. I remember that uh, many years ago now, that if, and if when I'm about to describe it, it will feel like it was 50 years ago, but I think it was only in the mid-noughties at the very latest. There was a, a conservative MP who'd been in the army who made some comments about it. Do you remember this? He, he said that, you know, there's a lot of banter hap- that happens in the armed forces. So if you were ginger, when people were making fun of you, they would call you a ginger bastard. Yeah. And if you were black, they would call you a black bastard. And everybody accepted it as part of the, the culture. And, it w- and he got instantly destroyed, had to resign, all this kind of stuff. But it is. And particularly but like I think a, that is what you're saying. I am. And like, I remember being in a pub uh, and this would have been probably early noughties, something like that. And being in a pub and I was watching a football game in the pub and Andy Cole, it was Man United were playing and Andy Cole missed um, a really goal he should have scored. As he was prone to do, let's and be honest. there's a bloke watching the telly in the pub and he's saying, oh, you black cunt. He says that. Now, is that, is that racist? Okay. I think uh, in okay. 2020, that would okay. be extremely That's what racist. he said. Yeah. Okay. Then Schmeichel, the um, goalie, yeah. lets in a goal that yeah. he should have saved. Mm. And the same guy goes, you blonde bastard. Mm. Right? Is that racist? The Andy Cole and, you know, they're both a cunt and a bastard mm. because they've not done what the fan was hoping they would do on the football pitch. Okay. They're not, Schmeichel's not a bastard because he's blonde. He's a bastard because he's a guy, uh, he's, he's a bastard who happens to be blonde. He's, he's, he's a bastard because he's letting a goal and he happens to be blonde. Yeah. Andy Cole is not a cunt because he's black. He's a cunt because he's missed a goal and he happens to be a black guy. Right. Okay. Now here's the clincher of this story. It was a black guy who said it. Mm. It was a black guy who called Andy Cole a black cunt. Suddenly we can breathe again. (laughs) (laughs) And I was holding my breath. (laughs) No, but but like just in having this conversation, and I I sort of almost regret already having this conversation because I can see it dramatically backfiring. But, you know, just in having, we can't even talk about this shit. And this is a, you know, and so, but so it's a black guy calling Andy Cole a black cunt. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And there's so many moral questions there. And it's, it's, you know, and even the guy, even if the guy who said it was a white guy and he called him a black cunt, he's not advocating the persecution of black people. He's just 
He's just going, are you black cunt? I guess my sense of that situation, irrespective of who's saying, is how is their blondness or colour relevant to the fact that they're a bastard? It was, you know, a defining characteristic. Right, right. so this is what I'm saying is maybe some of the progress we have made that's been good is that we avoid judging people in these group categories when it's not relevant to, to to the thing at hand. Like Andy Cole fucked up, Schmeichel fucked up. Do we need to bring their skin color or hair color into it? Maybe we just leave well, we it just out. Do well, yeah. But then that's that sense. That's well, th- that's a form of censorship, and it's a, it's a, uh, and you can choose as an individual. No, no I'm to not go, saying we censor to, that. I'm not no, saying you, but but maybe, you can self censor. But that's just an individual using his judgment. No, no, all I'm saying is maybe in that situation we we learn not to make an issue of those things when it's not relevant. That's all. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I just like. It, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I, I don't. I think a society in which everyone goes around calling each other black cunts is pro- or white cunts or whatever um, is probably not. It's probably not a good thing. But it's a football match. Yeah, I think the and, real and lesson. It's in a pub. Yeah. You know, it's that's when that that's. I think the real lesson here is just never to watch Man United. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you I mean, got us out of that. There was, the man, there, was the man, there was the Man City player, um, um, the, uh, uh, Bernardo Silva, yeah. who got done earlier this season for calling the, was it Mendy? Benjamin Mendy, the black left back, mm. Portuguese guy, joked that Mendy looked like yeah, some he li- yeah, character. Yeah, from Spain. Yeah, which, but they were like mates, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, Mendy yeah. found it very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's like me going to you, you look like, Whoever. Yeah, or yeah, it's like France is saying we're going to deport you back to Russia. I don't take it personally because it's a job. Yeah, right. But it's, then it's FIFA not. decided to get <laughs> involved really and got all holier than now. And didn't he get? Yeah. He got banned, didn't he? And it's just a stupid like that is people seeing racism where it was yeah. not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely with yeah. you on that. Yeah. All right. Anyway, let's fucking end it now. <laughs> Look at Francis. He's so sweating. so uncomfortable. He's sweating with his little white skin. Yeah. Um, Guys, buy this book. It's great. Dominic's going to need the proceeds when he gets cancelled. <laughs> yeah. Pay my legal fees. <laughs> Daylight Robbery, brilliant book about taxation. Make sure you get it. Uh, and we will see you in a week from now with another brilliant episode if we're still here. Yeah, take, it, take care. See you next week, guys. 